Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Bardflies, a podcast about the importance of seeking professional marriage counseling instead of relying on the advice of your bros. This week, Othello, the Moor of Venice, falls prey to an Inception plot so successful you can be sure it wasn't written by Christopher Nolan. I'm James Smith. And I'm Will Quinn. This is episode 27. It's called Deception. I feel guilt, Maul. And no matter what I do, no, no matter how hopeless I am, no matter how confused, that guilt is always there reminding me of the truth. What truth? That the idea that caused you to question your reality came from me. You planted the idea in my mind. What is she talking about? The reason I knew Inception was possible was because I, I did it to her first. Will, would you be so kind as to tell us what happens in this play, Othello, the Moor of Venice? Our tale begins in the wealthy city-state of Venice, which is at war with the Ottoman Turks over its far-flung possessions in the Mediterranean. Leading the Venetian army is the Moorish general, Othello, an African renowned for his martial virtue and easily recognizable for his dark skin. Yet the incipient conflict with the Turks over the Isle of Cyprus takes a back seat in the opening scenes of the play to affairs of the heart and ego. Or is it Iago? Iago, an officer in the Venetian army, is incensed by Othello's promotion of a younger and supposedly less skilled soldier named Cassio over him. While walking with his friend Rodrigo, he learns that the beautiful noblewoman Desdemona, who Rodrigo lusts after, has eloped with Othello and secretly married him behind her father's back. Iago sets out to turn these circumstances to his advantage, leading to the ruin of nearly everyone in the play. Iago sets out about doing this, first by creating a crisis that will allow him to win Othello's trust, all the better to be able to exact his revenge up close. He and Roderigo inform Desdemona's father, Brabantio, about his daughter's marriage in graphic terms, claiming that, quote, an old black ram is topping his white ewe. But then Iago runs off to warn Othello that Brabantio is coming after him. Brabantio finds Othello in the palace, where Venice's duke and senators are discussing the latest news, that the Turks have set out to invade Cyprus. Brabantio interrupts these affairs of state with outlandish claims that Othello must have used witchcraft to seduce Desdemona, only for Desdemona and Othello to convincingly demonstrate that she had fell in love with the Moor for his eloquent and sympathetic stories about his past. Brabantio delivers a prophetic warning to Othello as he leaves, claiming that if Desdemona deceived her father about her marriage, she will do the same to her husband. Iago takes note as Othello and the army set off for Cyprus. Fortunately for Venice, and unfortunately for Othello, Desdemona, and Cassio, the Turkish fleet was destroyed by tropical storm convenient plot coincidence, and so the principal characters have little to do but become enmeshed in Iago's schemes. Iago first goads Roderigo into fighting Cassio, leading Cassio to wound another soldier who tries to break up the fight, leading Othello to demote Cassio, and Iago to suggest to Cassio to appeal to Desdemona to lobby Othello to reinstate Cassio as his lieutenant, a task in which Desdemona succeeds. 
You know, Will, when I read the play, I thought this all made sense. And now that I'm hearing your plot summary, I feel like I need a diagram. Yes, get your pencils out, folks, because the plot is twisty, confusing, and quite difficult to pull together, even in a plot summary. So again, keep track at home. Iago also asks his wife Amelia, who works as a handmaiden to Desdemona, to procure Desdemona's unique handkerchief, a keepsake that had been given to her by Othello, who in turn received it from his mother. Amelia has no idea why Iago wants the handkerchief, but agrees to do so, picking it up when Desdemona accidentally drops it. Iago plants the idea that Desdemona is having a secret affair with Cassio. After all, why else would he be spending so much time with her in private of late? Othello is skeptical at first, but gradually gets worn down by Iago's repeated insinuations, awakening the green monster of jealousy. The plot accelerates rapidly when Iago places the handkerchief in Cassio's quarters. Iago then interrogates Cassio, having told Othello to hide in the room and observe Cassio's reactions. A main line of questioning concerns Cassio's sex life, principally his visits to Bianca, a high-end call girl whose favors he enjoys. But he whispers her name so quietly in the conversation that Othello presumes the conversation is really about Desdemona, a misunderstanding compounded further when Bianca accuses Cassio of giving her a token of love from another lover, which Othello presumes is Desdemona. Othello, on the verge of a jealousy and rage-induced nervous breakdown, has several epileptic fits and decides that the right course of action here is to murder his wife. He enlists Iago, who he believes is honest and beyond reproach, to kill Cassio to complete the vengeance. But not before humiliating a bewildered Desdemona in front of a visiting Venetian delegation. He hits her in front of their guests and later calls her a whore behind closed doors, despite the protestations of Amelia, who insists that her mistress is faithful. Iago's plot is moving along quite nicely, but he has some loose ends to tie up, mainly Rodrigo who has been giving Iago jewels to woo Desdemona on his behalf, which Iago has pocketed with nothing to show for it. Iago convinces Rodrigo to attack Cassio, who bests the foppish nobleman rather easily, but Iago sneaks up behind Cassio and wounds his leg without being seen. Iago hides in the darkness, and when help arrives, he quietly murders the injured Rodrigo to prevent him from revealing the plot. Meanwhile, in the Moors' quarters, Othello confronts Desdemona in their bed, and in an agonizing scene in which she begs for her life, he smothers her to death with a pillow, but not before Amelia arrives and calls for help. Othello tells the visiting Venetians of the handkerchief only for Amelia to reveal that she had given the handkerchief to Iago. Iago stabs Amelia in a fit of rage and runs, only to be caught by the guards. He refuses to elaborate on why he set the plot in motion, while Othello kills himself with a sword he had concealed in his bedroom. Cassio gets promoted to take Othello's place, Iago gets extradited to Venice, and housekeeping has a mess to clean up when they turn down Othello and Desdemona's sheets. Oof. It's intense. Yeah. This one's pretty intense. In some ways, it may be the most intense play that we've read, especially the climactic scene. And uh, Will, just so you know, to accompany this conversation, I'm, I'm drinking a passionate Italian red from the Veneto region, which felt appropriate given the, uh, the operatic qualities. Yes, yes, qualities of this play. 
Yes, this one is um, intense, emotionally volatile. Obviously, we had some fun with the plot summary, but this is not a not an easy one to read. Some of these scenes are uh, intense, is the word. So, actually, Will, you know, on that note, that's really where I wanted to start this conversation because it struck me that this play, in contrast to Hamlet which is, I mean, we talked in our episode about Hamlet about how it is emotional, but nonetheless, the questions at the bottom of Hamlet are heady and philosophical, right? They're not, you know, they're questions that are about the nature of life and death. And it's about these sort of epic questions, but they're somewhat philosophical in nature. Mm -hmm. And then we've had... Recently, we've also had Troilus and Cressida and Measure for Measure, which are very interested in these questions about sex and sexuality and relations between men and women. But Mm -hmm. they're sort of approaching them from the perspective, seemingly, of social problems, in a way. Right. This play, on the other hand, is just incredibly visceral and concentrated in a way that I don't know that we've seen. I mean, maybe Romeo and Juliet is is a comp, but this play is as frank about sex as Measure for Measure is. You know, now is a big thing we talked about with Measure for Measure. Mm -hmm. But it's much more visceral to me, I think, much more primal. You know, it's getting at these issues of sexual jealousy and envy and, 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 yeah. and, you know, and I'm going to keep on going, you know, I'm sort of like waving my hands to symbolize everything else that it's about. But it feels like it's just getting at something much more, it's like more emotional and visceral. Did, did that strike you as being the case? And if so, what do you make of that? Yeah, visceral and also personal, I would say. I mean, there is sort of some social context to the play that we'll discuss and of course the fact that Othello is black is commented upon and is a feature of the play that's worthy of of some discussion and and how he fits in as sort of an outsider in Venetian society but nonetheless you leave the play really feeling that this is a personal story it's about the characters in a very direct way it's about vengeance jealousy, envy, all of the qualities you just mentioned, but it's concentrated in people. And the political plot, which Shakespeare often intertwines with the personal journeys of his characters, it's almost dismissed with a hand wave or a gust of wind that wrecks the Turkish Mm -hmm. fleet before they even show up in Cyprus. So there is this interesting aspect of Shakespeare really saying what's interesting here, what seems to be interesting to him is the emotional lives of the characters. Iago's villainy and deep desire for revenge and satisfaction on the one hand, Desdemona's rather open-hearted and straightforward love of her husband and admiration for him, Mm -hmm. and Othello's jealousy, rage, envy, insecurity, doubt. These are all very intensely personal questions, and that's really what drives the engine of the play more than any external event in the political firmament. All of that stuff is merely a backdrop 
for these very central questions about human relationships. And I guess that's why I, I think it, it feels so visceral and so intense. Yeah, and, and the questions that it's getting at are, as opposed to the social... Like, obviously, Angelo, in Measure for Measure, trying to coerce uh, Isabella to sleep with him is visceral in some way, right? Like, I think there's an obvious and immediate visceral reaction to that that's negative and, mm-hmm. and disgusted, right? But it doesn't land with the same force that mm-hmm. this does. And maybe part of that is just the quality of the writing of the play. I mean, I think, tell me what you think. I mean, part of it might be that in Measure for Measure, it just appears out of nowhere that yes, that yeah, Angelo, Angelo turns out all of a sudden is like, oh, she's hot, I want her. Right. Whereas in this play, right, you really do see the. uh, I mean, I I guess in terms of if you think about the time that the play takes place in, it's very fast. But in the way that it's constructed in the play, it's very methodical, right? You you really do see Othello start spinning out, and you see the transformation of his feelings for Desdemona from this very uh, romantic, really, love Mm -hmm. at the beginning that is then twisted out of shape by the deception of Iago. Mm -hmm. But I'm just trying to puzzle out, like, what is the difference of category here? I mean, why does it feel so much more deeply felt, I I guess? Yeah, it's an interesting point. I've got a theory with sort of two parts to explain that from my perspective, and I'll I'll try it out on you and see if you find it compelling. So first, uh, as I alluded to, basically it's almost all the A plot, Mm-hmm. of really just focusing and doubling down on the Othello, Iago, Desdemona, manipulation, deception situation. Yes, there are these other characters, and yes, they actually do have interesting things to say. Your Rodrigo's, your Cassio's, your Emilia's, all compelling characters, and, and Emilia is actually quite terrific in the story as Iago's wife and Desdemona's faithful servant. But you really do see a pairing away of all of the distractions that can sometimes, I think, lead the emotional aspects of Shakespeare's plays to drop out a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think this might also be at work in Romeo and Juliet as well, where they're so central to the play and everything in the play revolves around the decisions that they are making and their love for one another and you have all these other compelling characters but it's all in the service of this central problem or disruption in the sort of lives of everyone around them Mm -hmm. so i think by pairing away the plot and getting it down to just the basics of the situation you have you have that the other thing i'd say that i think makes it compelling is actually the writing as you know but i think it's the writing and its relationship to the plot i found myself really surprised by how effective the plotting was in the sense that it opens with basically Brabantio after Iago sort of poisons him against Othello, telling him that Othello has run off with his daughter and that, you know, things need to be done. Basically, there's an attempt to capture and by some interpretations, I'm sure the way this has been staged, an effort to, to more or less lynch Othello, mm-hmm. you know, which is pretty compelling drama. I mean, I'm pretty, pretty horrific to read some of the scenes that sort of evolve out of that. 
But then, right, the real sort of turning point is the big, long scenes that you get in Act 3 in particular. And I I kept on thinking Act 3, right, is when Iago really accelerates the mind game with Othello Mm -hmm. and brings in the handkerchief situation, does all of the insinuations both at the beginning of the act and then by the end of it, he's contriving to show evidence, quote-unquote, that reveals Desdemona's supposed treachery. And then after it, it's just really long, intense scenes in which the characters are sort of bouncing off one another and you get to see the emotion pour out. And I actually think it's the length of the scenes that really does it in a way, as he kind of puts these people in these situations and he doesn't allow an easy swap out of scenes. He doesn't really change the focus at all. It's just sort of relentlessly on the three central players. And so I, I, I think that's really remarkable. You know, the, the scene length, I sometimes would flip and I'm like, oh my God, this this scene in Act 3 that keeps going when Iago is manipulating Othello. Like, it just keeps going, you know, not in a bad way, but it's just like... Well, I, I think in. your observation is spot on because I do think in some of the earlier plays, and, and even honestly in Romeo and Juliet, the world is bigger, right? What's interesting, and I hadn't thought of this before, but it occurs to me now, right? Like this thing where they end up in Cyprus... They're completely removed from Mm -hmm. Venetian society. So they're in kind of a capsule. It's almost like a, uh, you know, a bottle episode, Mm -hmm. what we call a bottle episode in TV. It's just this small group of people who are siloed off from society at large. And therefore, it becomes more concentrated. You don't have any side scenes with Lord Montague or Mercutio and Benvolio growing out, right? And those scenes are great in Romeo and Juliet, don't get me wrong. But it does mean that you're more fully connected to the emotion and the emotional life of these characters as they're going through this experience. And you're not given a break from that. Yeah, I was kind of wondering about this, actually, since you brought up the world of film and television with the bottle episode reference. But this is kind of the equivalent, especially in the long scenes, of an unbroken close-up on two actors' faces, as opposed to sort of the broad, wide lens vista of where you get to see everything that's going on in a, in a big scene. It's the opposite of the wide portrait of an entire uh, society, and you're seeing every little thing go on in a, in a room. It's um, just very tightly focused. And you really get the sense that this is this is a play where if you cast the right actors, you're going to get powerhouse performances out of people here. It's almost unavoidable because there's such a back and forth. The lines are shorter. I mean, there are some great speeches in here, no question. But a lot of it is dialogue. It's rapid fire. It's back and forth, uh, high octane, really, really bracing emotional stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the part where Othello is dealing with the visiting Venetian delegation and he's clearly enraged for what he thinks Desdemona has done. I mean, that's bracing stuff. You know, he he slaps Desdemona or hits her in front of the delegation to the point where the delegates are disturbed. Yeah, they're put off. They're put yeah. off. I mean, in fact, they, they think it's appalling that it's happened. And then the scenes where Othello goes immediately after that and in his chambers is berating Desdemona as a whore, it does not let up, like just continues. Yeah. In that way, he doesn't shy away from viscerally unpleasant aspects of the characters either. You get and, to see sort of the nobility and the really unpleasant dark side. Um, right. But he, he also, 
I, I think part of what makes it successful too, Will, is that there's no leaps of logic, mm. right? He curates the unspooling very precisely, mm. I find. You know, there's the scene where Desdemona is saying, I'm going to keep on you, like, because Desdemona is really trying to get him to forgive Cassio. Mm-hmm. And she's basically saying, I'm going to nag you until yeah. you give in. And Othello's basically like, give me some space. Like, I'll listen to you later on. Like, I really just need some space right now. He says, I will deny thee nothing whereon I do beseech thee grant me this to leave me but a little to myself. And then later on, they're talking about the handkerchief. And Othello keeps asking Desdemona, where's the handkerchief? What's going on? And I mean, maybe we can play this little snippet of dialogue, but... I waste with you, my lord. Well, and how do you, my lady? Well, my good lord. That handkerchief did an Egyptian to my mother give. She was a charmer and could almost read the thoughts of people. She told her while she kept it would make her amiable and subdue my father entirely to her love. But if she lost it or made a gift of it, my father's eye should hold her loathly and his spirit should hunt after new fancies. She dying, give it me, and bade me, when my fate would have me wived, I give it her. I did so. And take heed on it. Make it a darling like your precious eye. To lose it or give it way was such perdition as nothing else could match. Is it possible? Tis true. There's magic in the web of it. Then would to God I had never seen it. Ha! Wherefore? Why do you speak so startingly and rash? It's lost, it's gone, it's out of the way. Heaven bless us. Say you. It is not lost. But what and if it were? How? I say it is not lost. Fetch it. Let me see it. Why, so I can, sir. But I will not now. This is a trick to put me from my suit. I pray you, let Cassio be received again. Fetch me my handkerchief. My mind misgives. Come, come. You'll never meet a more sufficient man. The handkerchief. I pray you, talk me of Cassio. The handkerchief. The man that all his time has founded his good fortunes on your love. The handkerchief! There's a real sense of, like, this is a rendering or... Shakespeare showing us a marriage on the rocks, right? It's very recognizable as this is a relationship that's going sour, but probably neither of the parties in well, Othello in this case very specifically could say why. Mm. But even though Othello hasn't yet taken action or even fully accepted Iago's insinuations, mm-hmm. you can see the effect that it's having on their relationship just in the way that they're interacting. Right. So, you know, whereas I think in plays where things are less successful, it just feels like these emotions come out of nowhere. Right. Yeah. There's an emotional logic that carries through scene to scene. Even Iago, whose hatred of Othello is pretty extreme and is present at the beginning without a ton of detail necessarily being laid out, there are some implications and things that are left unspoken or are barely alluded to that might indicate maybe why Iago hates Othello so much. But we'll get, you know, we can get into that. But even Iago, it's clear he's got his motivation. You're never left questioning why people are motivated to do the things that they do in this play. And you do see change and alterations and moving in different directions 
both through the mechanics of the plot, but also the emotional space that these characters inhabit. And um, it makes for really compelling drama, to be perfectly frank about it. It's really, really uh, good stuff. In fact, some of these scenes, I think, are among the best things that we've read by Shakespeare in this tenor. Like, I felt like I was seeing a new side of the work. Yeah, I, I agree. There, there's some truly incredible stuff here. And, and so, well, Will, let me say something about my experience reading this play, and you can tell me how you felt about this. I had a surprisingly, like, the play that my experience reading this most resembled of the previous plays we've read was actually Henry V, mm. where Act One, firing on all cylinders, great stuff, like, the setup is great, you get the situation drama right off the you know right from the get-go and then act two and three it's like kind of like iago's machinations are developing it's not really clear where everything's going you know and i was like it was sort of starting to lose me and then all of a sudden act four everything snaps into place and it just becomes the most intense absolutely relentless one thing after another does not let up and also within that, there's just, you know, there was some stuff like that amazing Amelia monologue in, I think it's in Act 4, about like wives being unfaithful to their husbands. But I do think it is their husbands' faults when wives do fall. Say that they slack their duties and pour out treasures into foreign laps, or else break out in peevish jealousies, throwing restraint upon us, or say they strike us or scant our former having in despite why we have goals, and though we have some grace, yet have we some revenge. Let husbands know. Their wives have sense like them. They see and smell and have their palates both for sweet and sour as husbands have. What is it that they do when they change us for others? Is it sport? I think it is. And doth affection breed it? I think it does. Is't frailty that errs? I think so too. And have not we affections, desires for sport, and frailty as men have? Then let them use us well, else let them know the ills we do. Their ills instruct us so. There's just stuff in there where you're like, what am I reading? Mm -hmm. It's not just that the emotion is so intense, it's also incredibly surprising and original mm. too. Does that map on at all to your experience? Yeah, I mean, it's frank and insightful in addition to being intense. And I think that actually adds something. I mean, you can imagine somebody watching this play in Elizabethan times and finding it not just bracing because of the intensity of the performances, but because it's accessing profound human truths about jealousy and envy that are present throughout history and are... Whether you're the, you know, the, the poorest groundling attending this or lords and ladies, right? You're going to have experiences and knowledge of maybe not situations with somebody like Iago, per se, but certainly the experiences of jealousy, envy, lust, passion, love. Those things are going to be a part of people's lives and sort of the fabric uh, of their existence. And what Shakespeare does in this play is he turns it up to 11, so you see it in exaggerated form, but he also has the characters making comments about their emotional lives that are pretty accessible. 
Like, this is not a situation that turns on some princess being exceptionally beautiful or Mm -hmm. manipulative with magic. It's all going on within the human heart in this play. And I think that it's all the more compelling for that, where there really isn't, despite the intricacies of Iago's plot itself and and all of the machinations and contrivances and, and sort of things that have to happen for it to work out, this is not necessarily a play... The weight of it is not in the cleverness of the plot construction. You know, it's not yeah. on the geopolitical stakes. It's very much in in these human lives that anybody can understand and relate to in some way, even if um, right. even if uh, even if you know no, nobody is uh, contemplating smothering their significant other with a pillow, or at least I hope not. And if you are, don't do that. Uh, that <laughs> do the opposite of what Othello does, yes. which is listen to the least reliable yes person in his retinue and go get professional help yes, who has some objective yes some objective understanding of what's going on yes yes um, seek seek professional help don't trust people that are uh, well it's not necessarily 100% obviously manipulative but i will say one of the crazy things when you read iago's lines is iago does this faux modesty thing and talks about how things aren't always what they seem yeah he's literally laying out and it like if you're a perspicacious reader you'll sort of almost be horrified that a fellow is going on with this because iago is not coming out and outright saying what his intentions are but he's making it very clear that he's not to be trusted uh, or that you shouldn't be eager to trust appearances quite so readily so uh, i i really want to get into iago will and i think we do need to move on but before we do i have one other question that relates to this kind of broader topic we've been talking about first and the emotion of the play which is do you think that sans iago you know without the manipulations and machinations of iago do you think that the Othello and Desdemona relationship is fundamentally strong and it's only because of Iago's intervention that it goes sour? Or do you think that Shakespeare is showing us a relationship that is fundamentally weak and exploitable mm. and that Iago's just taking advantage of that? Because I, I, I couldn't decide. I feel like Othello clearly is a jealous person. I mean, that seems to be a part of his character. But his love for Desdemona also seems to be sincere. And I don't know that those... Mm -hmm. I don't know that those things are necessarily in conflict, but I wasn't sure quite what to make of that. Yeah, I think maybe the way to think about that question is to look at the relationship for what it is, which is an intense, passionate love affair that turned into marriage. And they don't know each other terribly well. They've only been together for a short period of time, perhaps because of their emotional makeup, in Othello's case, certainly. Uh, They don't have the foundation of trust and deep knowledge of one another that might be present in a different sort of relationship. Might even be something that would bolster Othello against his most volatile and jealous tendencies so in a sense it's it is strong but it's also a candle that burns very very brightly 
but may also burn the candle down quite easily too. It's mm-hmm. it's in a sort of precarious situation, even though it is quite intense and I think heartfelt. I think that there are, are clearly challenges in the relationship that are latent and, um, you know, it took Iago to sort of bring that about. I don't know if it was just focused on, if you, this was literally just like a marriage story and you were just watching Desdemona and Othello. I don't know. I mean, I, they could split up in a year or he could smother her within a year or they could end up having a tempestuous but powerful and long lasting relationship. I, it's a toss up to me too. But I do think the nature of the relationship is really important to sort of right. parsing which of the two it might be. Right. Let's talk about Iago. I hate the moor. And it is thought abroad that twixt my sheets he's done my office. I know not if to be true, but I, for mere suspicion in that kind, will do as if for surety. He holds me well. The better shall my purpose work on him. Cassio's a proper man. Let me see now to get his place and to plume up my will in double knavery. Ah. I guess not just Iago specifically, but what's happening here in the play, Will. Mm. You know, so we made that joke about Inception, the movie, earlier. Mm-hmm. And I and I do feel like what's happening in this play is really Iago's planting this seed of jealousy or of mm. suspicion in Othello's consciousness and then sort of feeding it and and letting it bloom, right? Mm-hmm. And kind of the brilliance of Iago in some way is like he's doing something that doesn't really require that much maintenance to let yeah. it develop. Yeah. So I, I think there's two things to talk about here. And one of those things is Iago and Iago's hatred and the plot that he lays and the, and the mechanics of that plot. Also, and I think the first thing I want to talk about is, you know, one thing we've talked about at various junctures, and I, and I don't think we've really gone deep on this because most of the plays that this feature is in, we just frankly haven't been that interested in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, right, we've talked about this kind of idea of cognitive flexibility and Shakespeare's fascination with constructing reality and the idea that maybe you can change your understanding of what reality is based on what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. And that's all the stuff with the twins and Sebastian thinking that reality is something other than it is because he's treated a certain way by Olivia, right? Mm-hmm. Or Christopher Sly being made to believe that he's a nobleman at the beginning of The Taming of the Shrew. You know, this is like a constant theme in Shakespeare. I think, or my thesis here and I'm sure someone has written very intelligently about this, and I just am not aware of it. But my thesis is that this play is kind of the fulfillment of that idea, and it's just being done in a way that's much more effective because it's so focused Mm -hmm. and so specific, right? And like what we're seeing is like, what is deception if not a kind of social construction of reality 
whereby Iago is causing Othello to view reality as something other than it is and to functionally live in a different reality, right? Mm. A reality where Desdemona actually is unfaithful by virtue of developing this lie. What do you think about that? So, do you see the connection or do you think I'm off on a strange island here? I think the connection is there. I I think that this is a refinement of the gaslighting techniques that we've seen from the very beginning, from Two Gentlemen and Taming of the Shrew forward. So in that sense, it's um, a refinement of technique. On Shakespeare's part, you have the misunderstandings born from the selective use of evidence that are manipulated in a certain way. You have the use of language to plant seeds that later take shape and and bloom. Something that strikes me about it really is we're well into the period of Shakespeare's, I'd say he's operating at the height of his powers and has been for a few plays now. Certainly Hamlet is obviously a big one, Henry V. Uh, I don't know when you'd start sort of the clock on that, but clearly right now the concentration of of really good plays that he's writing is, is important to sort of consider. I guess what I actually take from it isn't just the refinement of this specific technique of the social construction of reality, the ability to deceive and, and flip circumstances on their head. I almost see it as a metaphor for and Iago's work as a metaphor for Shakespeare's artistry. And what I mean by that is essentially this. It's that Shakespeare believes enough in the characters that he's created to work his way through their motivations. He lets them act upon one another. He lets coincidences develop organically, and he allows Iago to reshape the plot and the mental space of Othello, but also people like Rodrigo and Cassio and and so Mm -hmm. on and so forth, and and even Desdemona. And in a way, this is what makes Iago such a fascinating character to me. He's both using this technique that Shakespeare has been refining, and he's sort of the embodiment of it, but he's also, as the driver of the engine of the plot in a way, it's almost like it's Shakespeare himself carrying things out and having enough confidence that he doesn't have to meticulously shape everything at the outset, right? Like, he allows the characters to act within the space that they've created, and the misunderstandings develop without the aid of magic. They they develop because of their humanity and mistakes and foibles. And in that sense, I find it kind of a fascinating culmination, not just of the technical skill in creating the alternative realities and the deception, but also a statement of, of Shakespeare's artistic maturity. But let me let me ask you about that, James. We sort of talked about a little bit, we've alluded to Iago's opportunism here and how he sort of works to construct these lies and illusions and contrive these situations that advance his agenda. But a lot of it seems to be through improvisation rather than grand design. What do you think Shakespeare's trying to tell us about the nature of deception and these alternative realities? And and do you find it to be uh, true to life and effective? Um, what, what do you think we're supposed to make of that? Well, there's a few things. I, I mean, I think the most basic one probably is that it only works because Iago is viewed by everyone as a fundamentally honest actor. And this was interesting, right? Because we're given this privileged access to Iago's mindset 
I, I think more privileged really than anyone else. I mean, he's mm-hmm. doing kind of the Richard the Third thing of standing forth on stage and telling us exactly what he's thinking. So we really know that Iago's a villain, but everyone else views Iago as honest and almost as a paragon of honesty. So it's like, you know, it's like Nixon going to China or something, <laughs> right? Where Iago is able to execute this plot only because he is the most honest person, right? So that's like the foundation of it. I think beyond that, it did feel very true to me. And I would say I would argue that this is, and maybe it's just that I didn't really understand or, or I, I heard something different than what you meant when you said this earlier. I actually think that Iago's plot is like not really mechanistic in that way, right? It, it doesn't feel like what he's doing is so dependent on things happening precisely in the way that he wants them to happen. Mm-hmm. He has a strategy. He knows where he wants to go. And he has a general idea of how he's getting there. And there are certain tactics that he's using at various points, right? Like he's like, yes, the handkerchief, that's a thing. That's an object. That's a specific object that can be a source of conflict in this relationship. Or mm-hmm. like Cassio. Cassio is extremely handsome. Right. And is like known for that. That's something that I can use to my advantage. So he, he like kind of has these ideas and they're more than inchoate, right? It's not like he's drawing on stuff that's not real, Mm-hmm. But it's also not like he's sitting down and diagramming out a precise set of steps that have to happen, a la a Christopher Nolan movie, for yeah, instance. Yeah, no, completely, completely agree. Where each thing has to happen perfectly or else it's all going to fall apart. So, you know, he sort of sets the thing in motion. And then what's what I think is really interesting is that that actually creates a situation where he's very able to adapt to things that happen and turn them to his advantage. Mm-hmm. The thing that strikes me as a good example of this is Bianca shows up. Bianca, the courtesan, basically, who Cassio is stooping or something, <laughs> you know, shows up and throws the handkerchief in his face and Othello sees it. And there's no way that Iago could have arranged for that to happen. Right. right? And definitely couldn't have arranged for it to happen at that specific time. But he set things in motion in such a way that it does happen, and when it happens, he's able to take advantage of it, right? And then he's able to do the thing where he's talking to Othello, and he says... And so he's talking to Othello about this, and this is after he's gone and talked about Cassio and the relationship between Cassio and Desdemona and building up this, Mm -hmm. you know, this suspicion. And then he says about Cassio, to see how he prizes the foolish woman your wife. She gave it him, and he hath given it his whore. It, in this case, being the handkerchief, right? right? So now he's, you know, he's just adding fuel to the fire of the jealousy. Because not only has he smirched the honor of your wife, but also he holds her so cheaply that he's giving tokens of yours from your mother that she has given to him to the whore that he has on the side, right? It's very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, anyway, long story short, I, I feel like I've gone off on, you know, on a little bit of a tangent here. But I think fundamentally what I'm seeing here is that Iago is able to be successful because he understands his overall strategy, but he's flexible. Exactly. And he's done things in such a way that he's able to take advantage of things that on each step of the way and therefore it can happen organically, almost as if he's not the one directing events. Yes. I mean, I think that he understands... 
the nature of Othello, and he understands Othello's insecurities. I mean, even down to recognizing Brabantio's comments, Desdemona's father's comments, to Othello before they all ship out to Cyprus, saying, Desdemona kept her marriage to you secret from me. I would expect that she'll keep things secret from you. Iago is listening in and is sort of realizing he's got many different opportunities and many different many different ideas that he can draw on or experiences or comments. You know, Cassio is very, not just very handsome, he's young, whereas Othello is portrayed, I believe, as slightly older or, or much older than Desdemona. I mean, he's mm-hmm. referred to as old repeatedly throughout the play. So I do think that there's there's a lot to that. I agree. It's not mechanistic per se. I think it, it's actually much more naturalistic in the sense of Iago is getting out of his own way when Othello is primed to make mistakes. And also when opportunities present themselves, he channels it and bends it towards his own purposes, which I think is, is rather... Um, fascinating in its own right there's that great speech when he sets up rodrigo and cassio to fight he turns more or less to the audience and says either way i can't lose if rodrigo dies i get to keep the jewels i don't have to worry about tying up loose ends and everything works out perfectly well for me if cassio dies then that also advances my goals in a variety of ways. He's adept enough at seeing the potential upside in all of these situations and really reaping the benefits of it. Uh, And it's quite sinister, but it also strikes me as um, the way a truly opportunistic person uh, would behave. And in that sense, I think it's quite brilliant that Shakespeare shows that. Whereas somebody like Aaron the Moor, to use our other Moorish character in the Shakespeare mm-hmm. universe, is the mustache twirling villain who has to have like the grand design of how to get revenge. This is a very different case. Yeah. There's no magic well, and, here. You know? And <laughs> Titus, you, you know, the plot of Titus basically and completely relies on everyone else in the play being a complete moron. I just have this memory of, you know, that scene of the two brothers, who is it, Chiron and Demetrius, mm-hmm. right, with Aaron, and Aaron's like, oh, why, why don't you go kill Lavinia? Like, that'll work out for you. <laughs> like, yes, yes, great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, obviously, like- you know, it, 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 some exaggeration here on my part, but it relies on Aaron just being able to direct people to get them to act the way he wants in like comically easy ways because they're such dupes. Whereas in this play, I don't think any of these other characters are stupid in that way, right? Mm-hmm. It, Yeah, I mean, it comes back down to that sense that Iago is trusted, right? Mm-hmm. And therefore they are susceptible to his machinations or to, you know, or to his plot. And all of them do trust him, right? Mm-hmm. All three of... Othello, Desdemona, and Cassio basically trust Iago. I mean, in fact, the only character who maybe doesn't trust him as much is his wife, Amelia. But Amelia, you know, and I think Amelia's a great character in this play, but she does do that cardinally wrong thing of being Mm. like, well, I'm not sure what he's doing, and I think it's probably not great, but I'm going to go along with it for now. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I think one of the one of the interesting things that you raise here is the and it will lead us into our last theme is the difference between appearance and reality 
appearances being deceiving, the external presentation. I mean, Iago himself is a great example of this. He's trusted uh, and outwardly appears to be Othello's friend and confidant. But in fact, he's working very much against his interests. And of course, I spoke about the irony at the beginning of how Iago is saying, Desdemona looks like she's pure, but she's really not Othello. She's actually behaving terribly and is cheating on you. I think that there's something interesting here about Othello as a character and Othello's reputation and Othello's appearance. We don't have too many black characters in Shakespeare. I mean, Othello is easily the most famous. Aaron the Moor, there's some characters in, I think, Merchant of Venice. Yeah, there's the Prince of Morocco. Yes. Is it the Prince of Morocco? I believe it's Morocco. And and there might be another guy from the Middle East in that one. There's a couple different suitors. Mm -hmm. But the point being, Othello is easily the most famous, explicitly black character in the Shakespeare canon. And that's led to a lot of really interesting debates and commentary, I know. And in fact, a lot of controversial films of this, because for a very long time, it was quite common for white actors to play Othello in blackface. And I'm not talking way back in the day either. I'm talking Laurence Olivier in post-World War II kind of era. Yeah. I think it might have even been as Orson Welles did it Orson too, Orson Welles in like the 70s or 60s, something like that. So th- there's a lot of interesting stuff there, but it also raises this question to me, right? Which is that Othello is very widely esteemed. He's an outsider. There are definitely racial remarks that Rodrigo and Iago make behind his back in the first act in particular. But Othello is a respected member of Venetian society too. And yet at the same time, his race is commented upon and is clearly a major topic of commentary when people are describing him and describing his external appearance and his inward nobility and and all of that. But it also raises the question to me of... We talked about this being a very personal play, a very like individually centered play, not one that talks a lot about politics in quite the same way. What are we to make of race in this play? You know, is it a central is it a central theme or not? And I keep turning it over in my head and I don't know I don't know whether it's sort of context in the 21st century thinking about it. Or, you know, Shakespeare clearly wrote it in, right? So it's clearly something that is innate in the play structure. I mean, obviously he's working from, well, not obviously, but he is, we know he's working from some source material, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not Othello being a Moor is within his source material. But of course, if Shakespeare wanted to write a play about jealousy going awry and and a husband murdering his wife, like he could have chosen a million... (laughs) Yeah. other stories that didn't involve a black person. Even if you want to like abstract back to the next level, he chose the source material to work off of that featured this. And that is significant in some mm-hmm. way. I would say my reaction reading the play, Will, was the same as yours, where I, I, I couldn't quite figure out what to make of it. And I have two big thoughts on this that spring to mind first. So, one, the other play that comes to mind that I think is the obvious analog here is Merchant of Venice, which interestingly that they're both set in Venice, which I think is indicative of like the degree to which Venice at that time was viewed as being where this kind of cultural mixing and these cultural clashes could happen. Mm -hmm. 
in Merchant of Venice, you have Shylock as the primary villain of the play. And I, I mean, it was, I just think it's a very instructive comparison because in Merchant of Venice, Shylock's Jewishness is truly significant to the play and to the mm-hmm. plot of the play in a way that Othello's being a Moor or being black is not really significant in this play. And I don't mean to say that it's not significant in this play. I'm just saying, like, it is a serious plot point in The Merchant of Venice that Shylock is Jewish, right? right. Whereas in this play, Othello is a Moor, but it's kind of incidental to the main action of the plot. You know, this play could be about a Venetian general, you know, of long-standing Venetian nobility, or maybe like an upstart Venetian soldier who's risen to the who's risen to mm-hmm. the ranks and illicitly runs off with Desdemona. So th- there is a contrast there. So it, it it feels like it's less essential to the story than was Shylock's Jewishness. So it it almost seems like it's there as something he's, he's interested in for the otherness of Othello mm-hmm. to venetian society and like it's about mm-hmm. an outsider's experience and maybe that influences one his own sense of alienation and makes him more vulnerable to iago and also maybe that helps drive some of the psychology of the other characters who are reacting to him but it doesn't seem like it's mm-hmm. a direct racial commentary in the same way that shylock is yeah, I think that's a, that's a really interesting point because I I actually think if you were to direct this to today, right? I made reference to how Brabantio's anger over his daughter running off and eloping with Othello, more or less effort to to have uh, Othello imprisoned and possibly executed. You could definitely portray that, you know, in a very explicit like attempt to lynch a black man for being with a white woman. There are ways in which you could really make this latent thematic content uh, and really bring it, I think, to the foreground in various ways. Because I hear what you're saying. I think it lends a precarity to Othello's position as this esteemed outsider, but who is also incredibly vulnerable in various ways. It's just not called out in the text very clearly. I mean, I guess I would have to go back and look through all of the references to Othello's blackness in the play, mm-hmm. but it well, is kind of interesting clearly... because I feel like it's part of the ether and the atmosphere and the, the firmament, and it's a subject of commentary. But at the same time, it's not it's not the element like in Merchant, Shylock's yeah. Judaism is central to the play's conception of like forgiveness and the law versus mercy and and all of those themes sort of fit together in a very neat and explicit way i think you basically disagree with me about this but like from reading merchant of venice i'm like yeah shakespeare definitely hates jews (laughs) and the reason for that is like yes there's the explicit stuff but a lot of it is the background stuff you know which is about shylock's rapacious business practices and how he's always setting out to screw over the people he's dealing with and like mm-hmm. make whatever money he can in a way that does not seem ethical. So the background noise on Shylock is, I think, extremely negative throughout the play, in addition to mm-hmm. all the surface-level stuff. Whereas in this play, you ha- I think it's much more subtle and sophisticated yes. 
in that yes. you know you have stuff like Iago and Rodrigo talking about Othello in these highly charged racialized terms commenting on you know on his thick lips I, I think is one big example right yes, and yeah yeah very referring to him charged. as a black ram you know but it, uh woolly you know like, you're also like stuff seeing like that. it from the perspective of two characters who for different reasons hate othello right whereas you have other characters who are very respectful of othello and talk about how noble he is and you know and he's clearly mm-hmm. in the duke's confidence and you have gratiano later on who as i rec- who's talking about when he hits desdemony is like this seems odd like very out of character for othello Right. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot more subtlety and interplay to the way these things are rendered. And and so it it reads not as Othello is to be held in contempt or in disrepute or, Mm -hmm. or whatever other term you want to use for being black. It reads instead as this is a thing that can be used against him by people who don't like him. You know, and they can call that out. So it's like there is something in the air that is racially charged. Yes. But it's not explicitly negative. So, you know, for everyone, I'm not expressing this very well, I don't think. But yeah. Well, so, James, I can I can maybe give this a shot because I think I understand sort of where you're going with it. I guess I would say it sort of sets him up for a unique vulnerability, not just because he's an outsider, but he's sort of a model almost a model minority in the Venetian society. So any error that he makes, he's held in such esteem, but it's a sort of esteem where he's placed on a pedestal to the point where Brabantio's accusations against him are more or less laughed out of the palace because they're seen as absurd and ridiculous. But Othello is like not a, as we see, not a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination. There's a unique aspect of, yeah. of his vulnerability yeah. in being an outsider in that context that I think is interesting. I don't know if that's sort of where you were going, but, right. I, but I think that that's part of why it gets thrown at him with everything else. And it's like, oh yeah, they love you until you make a mistake or until you reveal some less than becoming traits because you're supposed to be sort of the perfect general, the martial African hero who can... And marks him as a part, right? right? And the person who is a part is at risk always of being reminded that they are a part. And I think that's what you see like early on in that dialogue between Iago and Rodrigo and and, you know what they're doing with Brabantio, right? I think Brabantio's anger at Othello is not fundamentally about Othello's otherness. You know, it's about the fact that Brabantio wants his daughter to marry the person that he wants her to marry. But having had that thing happen that he didn't want to happen, it's now something that Iago can like further insinuate to further enrage Brabantio, right? Not only has this happened, but the person who stole her from you is the other. Right. Does, does that make right. sense? No, that, that does make sense. And I do think that that's a, a major difference from Merchant of Venice. And I think I would agree with you that Merchant of Venice and Shylock is written in an unsympathetic way. He gets the best lines, right? But there's no question of Shakespeare's perspective, which is uh, you know anti-Semitic and negative towards Shylock in the final analysis, mm-hmm. even if Shylock gets to reveal the hypocrisy of certain people in the Christian society of Venice. He's still a villain. I think Othello is um, 
perhaps even a more ambiguous character in some respects, because he's less of a caricature. Yeah. And I think if you had actually foregrounded, I mean, I think just because of the nature of how it would be written at the time and, and just in general. I mean, compare him to Aaron the Moor, right? Aaron the Moor is like an extremely overdrawn caricature of a manipulative schemer in Titus Andronicus. And, you know, I think that a lot of it is just playing on his blackness as a sign of evil. Mm-hmm. You know, you can kind of go down that road. But if you wanted to really make that a central fixture... I think it would lead to a place where Othello was more of a Shylock character. Mm -hmm. What I love about this and the way that it's written is Othello stands both as an individual, but also as an individual with a background, with a sort of perspective and a history. And you get to hear a little bit about it, but it doesn't actually necessarily dictate every single interaction Mm -hmm. or aspect of the way in which he inhabits the world and interacts with people. You could definitely portray it that way. And I think that it certainly would have colored his experience um, at the time, but also it's not constantly pushed and made explicit in the way that it is in Merchant of Venice, if that makes sense. Yeah. It can be subtext and a good director and good actors can adjust that depending on what they want to emphasize in the play yeah. itself. And that was the second... I, I never made my second point on this, Will, but that, that was basically my second observation on it. Is I, I think that this question illustrates something that's very effective in Shakespeare uh, throughout is like the level of interpretation that he leaves to you where it can be... Right, I think you could play this as being absolutely fundamental mm-hmm. and you know you could really heighten the degree to which it's significant through performance through emphasis whatever or it could be completely secondary to the revenge plot yeah yeah right i mean yeah absolutely so you know I, he really allows you to read into it or he gives the director and the actors i guess the dramatic possibility to work with it and interpret it how they want to adapt it to whatever their milieu Yeah, yeah. it's actually the fact that it's even an open question that we're discussing and that I think you can have reasonable interpretations, not just from an artistic perspective, if you're a director or actor, but even from the perspective of just having a conversation about it, I think shows a level of of artistry here that's pretty impressive and, and pretty powerful to behold in action, Yeah, which actually raises our ranking question. We've both been pretty positive on this play, but I'm curious where you rack it and stack it in uh, the work that we've we've had so far. Oh boy. Well, this is a a very very good play, <laughs> and I've looked at my list a lot, and I've thought a lot about it. And you know, one thing will that strikes me or that has struck me is that all these plays, particularly the top, are all great, and they're all great in really different ways. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like he's doing four plays that are all really good, but that are on basically the same topic, right? Like, they're all addressing these different questions. Mm -hmm. So, to me, there's no way it's not in that top tier of Hamlet, Henry IV, one, Henry V, Julius Caesar. You know, you know, where I'm really struggling is where do I place it in relation to Hamlet and Henry the Fourth, Part One? 
at very points I'm like, this is the best one. It's number one. And at other points I'm like, well, it's probably number three. Hamlet, bigger, more profound, asking more intense fundamental questions. Mm. Henry the Fourth, one broader, you know, has this project that is more universal and like addressing a, a broad base of society and is like asking these oppositional questions. So it's very philosophical in that way. This play, on the other hand, is just like pure intense emotion. Mm. So to me, like, where do I rank it in that matrix? Hard to say. I think, you know, recency bias is also a real thing. I think I'm going to come down and say it's number three. Mm. You know, even as I'm saying it, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I, I think I'm going to call it number three. It's going to go between Henry the Fourth Part One and Henry the Fifth. What about you? Where do you place it? I put it fourth. I sort of had the same struggle, I think, that you did. So I have Hamlet at one, Henry V at two, Julius Caesar at three, and then Othello at four. And then after that, it's displacing Henry IV part one. I think, well, I'm really impressed by the bigger project of the Henriad and the world building and the, the relationships that Shakespeare is sort of conjuring out of Henry the Fourth Part One. I think Othello just demonstrates a level of talent and skill that it's just such a leap forward in his ability to write emotionally complex characters and have them bounce off each other and do interesting things and make it raw and uh, compelling in new ways to me. Like some of the scenes that we've read, I just don't think we've read scenes like that from Shakespeare. We've read other types of scenes that are just as good but are different. This really, I feel like, showed me an expanded repertoire and something new. And I had never read this one before. So it was uh, It was also, there's a bit of novelty and, mm-hmm. and recency bias absolutely at work in my thinking. I think I find the political plays a little bit more uh, compelling. And I think Hamlet is Hamlet for me. And it's going to stay at one until, uh, <laughs> until and unless I read one of the remaining plays that convinces me to change my mind. But I can see why Othello is one of the big four tragedies and gets the hype i don't know that i really did before i I read it this time around and so it's at number four for me partially for idiosyncratic tastes and tell me will so why um why do you maintain julius caesar above othello i'm just interested to know i think that i really took away some of the political aspects of julius caesar for the moment that one, not just the moment we've been living in, obviously, and we, we talked a little bit about in the, that in the episode, but, but also just it's a phenomenal way to understand archetypes in politics and the appeal and reasons why certain people succeed and certain people fail in their political work. I found that to be really compelling. I found the stuff on crowds and demagogues to be interesting, uh, legitimacy, rhetoric, I just found Julius Caesar really spoke to me as somebody with an interest in those themes. I think other people's mileage Fair enough. will vary. But that's no, that's why play, Julius Caesar play. is above Othello. And then, Will, who do you place, who do you anoint the MVP of Othello? I anoint Iago, a powerful and realistic villain 
whose ability to manipulate the other characters is perhaps unsurpassed. I mean, Richard III obviously has it as well, but Iago, it's very naturalistic, very powerful. You really hate the guy, but you also have to admire him in a sort of sick way for pulling all of this off. He is truly execrable, but incredibly well-written. So it's Iago for me. What about you? I'm gonna go... Well, are, are you are you sitting down? Are you are you yeah, ready I'm, for I'm, a, a truly controversial? The smelling salts are, here? are ready to revive me. I am going to say Amelia is the MVP of this play. Mm. Not a character that we talked very much about in our discussion, and is not one of the three main characters of the play. Nonetheless, one I, I did briefly mention that the one monologue in act four that she gives where I was like reading it. I was like, what am I reading? Mm. But I think that was indicative uh, throughout of kind of the nature of that character who is a secondary character, but nonetheless, I think one of the more insightful characters in the play and someone who both thematically crucial and also has a certain level of clarity about what's going on that none of the other characters do and also frankly i just enjoyed her character a lot so yeah no I, I i hear you and an interesting combination of naivete and true insight and i completely agree that she's one of the more insightful characters in the play period so james recommendation for our listeners this week i do have a recommendation will a little off the beaten track here but the other night i watched the film chunking express directed by Wong Kar Wai. It is a 1994 film about two police officers in Hong Kong who are both going through breakups and basically examining what these two different guys go through. Mm. Kind of a strange movie. I believe it's the movie that made his name, uh, Wong Kar Wai. But really, really interesting, well worth watching, and just a, a kind of filmmaking that we're not accustomed to in the States. So it's on the Criterion Collection, on Criterion Channel, and I really enjoyed it. Can you give us that recommendation again, James? Yes, it's Chunking Express, directed by Wong Kar Wai. And that's our show. Next time on Bard Flies, our Shakespearean tour of Italy continues with All's Well That Ends Well. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, share the show with your friends, and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter, and drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.